Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This netcast is part of a series from the Fall 2009 Faith and Globalization Seminar. For more on the initiative, visit faithandglobalization.yale.edu. So we'll begin by talking about the first couple of chapters of Luke, uh, where he tells a distinctive story of the, the birth of Jesus and uh, his early days. Uh, the stories uh, begin with uh, John the Baptist, actually, and the announcement of his birth, which is paralleled with an announcement of the birth of Jesus, and then reactions to those announcements, including a magnificent bit of poetry put on the lips of uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the poem known as the Magnificat. And uh, Zechariah, the father of uh, John, has a similar balancing poem, uh, the Benedictus. And both of them uh, articulate some themes that are very prominent in, um, in the gospel as a whole. Uh, are there things, David, that uh, strike you as uh, particularly significant about those? Well, one, one picture we've had of, of, of Luke's gospel out of the book of Acts is, is what one, one says of the Christians somewhere in the book of Acts, that in them the world is turned upside down. And one of the things I noticed most powerfully, especially in, in Mary's song in the Magnificat, is that, that the mighty are cast from their thrones and that the lowly are lifted up. And the sense that, that what happens in Jesus Christ, uh, as foretold in this, part of the, in this part of Luke's Gospel, is not simply the individual salvation of each human being, though I think that's important, but a reordering of, of the social structures, a reordering of history. Uh, my puzzle is, uh, how does Luke see that happening uh, well, that's my first puzzle. How do you think Luke sees that happen? Then I want to think about how we apply that to our times today. What, how does the world get turned mm. upside down in this country? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, the, the, the language seems very political, doesn't it? It does, yeah, extremely. And um, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones, yeah. uh, and he has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich empty away. Uh, according to the promises that he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. It's interesting that Luke concludes on that theme, that there's continuity here Huge. between uh, God's actions of old in uh, ancient Israel yeah. and what's going on in his own environment. There's continuity, but there's also discontinuity, and I think we'll discover that as yeah. we get into it. Uh, the continuity, I think, is, is uh, highlighted by the, the very form of this poem, uh, which uh, seems to be a, a replication or inspired by, perhaps, the poem of Hannah, uh, the mother of the prophet Samuel. And it's interesting to compare the, uh, the similarities and the differences. That poem that ap uh, appears in, uh, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2 uh, has some of the same um, notions of reversal and uh, God taking the part of the poor and the lonely and the oppressed. And I think that's an important emphasis of Luke, all right. But this emphasis of the larger context of uh, a set of promises going back to Abraham yeah. is something that's distinctive of Luke, as is the theme of God's mercy being shown from generation to generation, which we get in uh, Luke 1.50 as part of the, uh, the Magnificat. Um, that theme of mercy is very distinctive of Luke, and it ties into his, his insistence that the gospel is really about compassion yep. and forgiveness. Yep. So there are two things that, uh, that happen in this, or two or three things that happen in this hymn. Um, it, first of all, the notion that there's, there's a parallel, there's continuity. Uh, God is working in a similar fashion, but he's doing something new at the yeah. same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the puzzles for me, and I've, I've, I've found it unanswerable, so I'm gonna put it to you. Uh, insofar as we can make guesses about Luke's original audience, is he writing to the oppressed to encourage them or is he writing to the oppressors to call them to be merciful? Is this written for the comfortable or for the uncomfortable, or both? Mm, is it to comfort the afflicted? Yeah, or, or to, to afflict, afflict the, the comfortable, comfortable? Exactly. 
Uh, I kind of have the sense that he's writing to afflict the comfortable. Okay. Uh, there's a message of, of hope in, in Luke's gospel as a whole that I think um, they, uh, the afflicted can hear. But I think he's really addressing um, an audience that probably is a little more established, a little more part of uh, the Greco-Roman yeah. social order. Yeah. The very fact that he's writing um, the, the literature that he does with these literary prefaces that remind us of the, the works of, uh, of the ancient historians, of Herodotus, Herodotus or Thucydides, yeah. suggests that he's writing for a literate audience. Uh, and the fact that he keeps dwelling on this issue of wealth and poverty yeah. uh, suggests that he's writing for people who have some means. Yeah. They're probably not at the uppermost layer of uh, Roman society. I don't think he's writing for the imperial family or the Roman senatorial class, but I think he's writing for well-to-do urban Christians who are beginning to think about what their responsibilities yeah. are in the light of God's transforming message. Yeah. So when passages we'll get to, like the rich man and Lazarus outside the gate, is written more to help the rich man think about it, to help those of us who are relatively wealthy think about how we are to deal with the impoverished rather than the impoverished think about how to protest right. the uh, rich. So I, I think that uh, the, the hymn here, and this is an interesting issue, the, the hymn has these, uh, these elements that suggest uh, a notion of, of uh, radical revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And that has been picked up in some contemporary, uh, that is 20th century liberation Hugely. theology yeah. in situations where um, that message probably needs to be yeah. heard yeah. in places like uh, Latin America, for instance. Uh, which shows something about the flexibility of the Bible. The Bible can, um, uh, can be applied in various different circumstances uh, depending on what those yeah. circumstances are. But I think Luke, uh, who might have a bit of poetry here that comes out of um, uh, a, a, a situation in ancient Israel where precisely that need for a message of hope to the oppressed was being articulated, uh, applies it to uh, his early Christian audience. And the emphasis here is going to be on the responsible use of of wealth yeah. and the, the way in which this proclamation of God's option for the poor has to be heard by and acted upon by people who are in a position to do yeah. so. And that, that ties in with the kind of sense of church community we get in the book of Acts where they're not the wealthiest but on the other hand it does include people of some wealth and it does include questions of responsibility for the least among them. That's right. Which I think is also very important. Yeah, and you, you get this ambiguity just to refer to Acts again. I think as we go through Luke we'll constantly be looking at uh, some parallels in Acts. Uh, Acts begins with this uh, image of the early Christian community sharing their goods, yep. uh, almost a kind of uh, early Christian communism. Yep. But that small C, small C, yeah, yes. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but that that then seems to um, uh, evaporate as as things move along, and uh, the community seems to be more like what we understand it to have been by the end of the first century when this gospel was probably written. Yeah. Well. Um, but I think I want to underline what you also said that one of the gifts of Scripture is that different people in different social locations can find in it the promise that they need. And were I an oppressed and marginalized person, I think I'd love the Magnificat for the opposite reason, uh, that it would bring me hope that those like you and I, like you and me sitting here in comfort, uh, mm -hmm. may one day have to be relativized for the sake of those who have so much less. Mm. There is a challenge here for those There is a who, challenge here, that's right, on both right. sides. And we'll hear some of that prophetic challenge in other parts of, uh, of Luke, particularly the Sermon on the Plain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one other dimension of the, um, uh, the poem here that I want to call attention to is the person who says it. Uh, that is Mary, yep. the mother of Jesus. What, what do you think about um, the, the role of women in the third gospel? I, I think there is no question that at key points, especially at the beginning and the end, we have women as those who bear testimony. Uh, I wrote one time uh, in, a, in an article for which I got enormous trouble that I thought in this gospel Mary was the first Christian preacher 
because she, she actually preaches the gospel, sings the gospel. Maybe she's the first Christian anthem singer. But the anthem is proclamation. It's gospel, and I think that's an important theme. I got in trouble because it's, it, it, people thought I was making her a Christian when she was really a Jew and that it was an anti-Semitic claim. I was merely saying I think that she, she presents the gospel. I think that's very important, and we'll see women as those who bear testimony and receive mercy time after time after time in this mm -hmm, gospel. Mm -hmm. Luke is very much interested in women. Do you think he was a defender of, um, oh, let's say, women's rights to be leaders of Christian communities? Or? I think he knew that women were leaders of Christian communities and didn't seem to have any problem with it. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, whether he was making a case or just assuming a case, I don't know, but I think it's, I, I don't find him saying, oh, be quiet, you're just a woman, or having the apostles say that, or Jesus say that. Mm -hmm. So I think, he's, I think he's for the kind of community where leadership is shared. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Uh, I think, he, again, like yourself, he knows of those Christian communities. Yeah. I think he grows out of a kind of Pauline Christianity. Yeah and uh, some of the uh, egalitarian attitudes that we see in Paul's letters, neither male nor female yeah. in Christ. Uh, people like uh, Junia, foremost among exactly. the apostles, exactly. are there in the background of, of Luke. I think so too. But I, uh, again, I, I have a, just a little bit of a suspicion that Luke is moving on toward the kind of Christianity that we see in uh, other parts of the New Testament where women have to be in their place. Uh -huh. Uh, and that they're, they're uh, understood to be significant parts of the community, but are they really, really in leadership? Really, par, That's right. equal, yeah. 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 Uh, there, there's an ambivalence there. There's an ambivalence it's, there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's somewhat similar, I think, to the, the kind of ambivalence you see about issues of, uh, of wealth and poverty. Yeah. Uh, that Luke really has uh, an important thing to say about the responsibility of those in uh, positions of, of wealth and uh, position to, to do something about. Um, but they, uh, but at the same time, they can keep their money. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see, see more of that. But my my great story on this, and then I want to get to the rest of the birth narrative. It was years ago when I was teaching a course on on preaching from Luke, and there was a woman in the class who was from Ghana, mm -hmm. um, and both those things are important. She's a woman, and she's from Ghana, and she read this. However, we might read this as if she had found her voice. Mm -hmm. That that Ghanaian Christians had not had women leaders that mm -hmm. they had raised money to send her to seminary, and Mary was her cry, mm -hmm. uh, that, that her soul magnified the Lord because like Mary, she was able to proclaim the gospel. So I, mm -hmm. I can never hear it without hearing that yeah. at the same time mm -hmm. yeah, as being powerful. All right, let's, let's move to um, the, the most famous part of, of Luke's gospel, except perhaps for the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son, the birth narratives. Uh, and in churches where I've been a pastor, every year, about two Sundays before Christmas, we have this retelling of the Christmas story where the shepherds uh, hear the angel and then the wise men show up and we have the presenting of the gifts and then they all stand and take a bow together. But interestingly in Luke 2, no wise men, uh, no star, uh, just these shepherds and a manger and a voice that says, this is a sign to you. What's the sign? What's, why does Luke tell this interesting story? Mm -hmm. I think an important part of the symbolism here is the fact that it's shepherds who are okay. uh, bringing their gifts and acknowledging the sovereignty of Jesus. And uh, this is of a piece with the, uh, the theme that we had both in the uh, Magnificat and the Benedictus, that God is being faithful to his promises of old. Mm -hmm. Those promises were promises to Abraham. Mm -hmm. Here I think you evoke David. Uh, the great mm, shepherd mm -hmm. of uh, ancient Israel. Mm -hmm. And I think Luke knows and understands that one of the expectations in um, first century Judaism was that there would be a Davidic Messiah. And I think he's um, uh, suggesting, insinuating, that Jesus is the fulfillment of those hopes. 
and he does so indirectly here because he has some issues with that, I think, and we'll see them later. It's not yeah, yeah. the dominant way in yeah, which he, but it's a he way understands uh, Jesus, that. but he wants to say, yeah. yes, this too is uh, something that we can affirm yeah. about Jesus. And also, of course, it's that people who are lowly and marginalized are recognizing right. this, this king. Right. It's not um, uh, the magi, whoever they are, yeah. wise people or kings from, from yeah. the east. Uh, they're uh, the, least in the, uh, uh, the least respected among uh, Israel societies. Yeah. And I think, too, uh, relative to what we, what we have seen and will continue to see, that, that while everything is called into question by Jesus coming, not everything is turned upside down. Uh, it's always struck me that instead of simply wandering off to proclaim the gospel everywhere, they return to their sheep. Mm -hmm. uh, they return to their sheep glorifying and praising God. And I sometimes think Luke's vision of what happens in Jesus Christ is not that tax collectors necessarily stop collecting taxes or that teachers stop teaching or that uh, rulers stop ruling, but they do it to the glory and praise of God. And that shifts the context without necessarily shifting the job description. Right. There is an important theme of reversal, but how that reversal, how that reversal works, works is may not be right. everybody get into sackcloth and ashes and head out. Right. Good. Thank you. Yale University, in collaboration with the Tony Blair Faith Foundation, has created the Faith and Globalization Initiative, which examines the profound impact of religious faith in a world where political, economic, and social spheres are increasingly interconnected. These crucial issues of faith and globalization can hopefully, through open discussion and reflection, lead to the kind of reconciliation and peaceful coexistence that life in the 21st century demands.